I would like to talk about what it means to grieve during coronavirus because by no means is grieving or losing somebody that you love an easy thing any time of the year, but I think it's even lonelier when you lose someone in this time because of your inability to be with family and hold your family and see them and and just be in their presence and be there for each other just for emotional support and I did I lost my my younger brother he was 23 and I lost him last week and so this grief is it's new and fresh and very painful and you know I can't even use words to describe how it feels I think you kind of know how it feels if you've gone through a, a tragic loss in your life, but it's just lonelier now because I can't can't go see him anymore and I couldn't see him, you know, for the past month. I couldn't visit him. I couldn't just drive down there and I can't drive down there now either because the risk is just too great. And so I've been grieving in my own way and one of those ways was to express myself create creativity express myself creatively creatively Jesus express myself creatively and I did that through music because I think you know music is a huge part of what heals me and a lot of others and helps you get emotion out um, I'd like you to take a listen from the same cloth you and I torn at the seams edges parade you were always so brave well I was afraid cut from the same That submission came in last week from an anonymous listener who's grieving a tremendous loss and using the power of music to heal. Thank you so, so much for sharing your story. All of us at The Big Know, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners too, are sending love and positive vibes to you and your family during this difficult time. We'll make sure to make uh, her entire story and the song available for listening off the podcast as well, so keep an eye out for that. You know, there are reminders all around us of just how unfair and challenging this pandemic can be. Right now, when we need each other the most, when we're sad, sick, isolated, and in need of our loved ones, we simply can't always be there with them right now. No, this is not normal. This is beyond normal. Hey everybody, I'm Nate Matson, and you're listening to Beyond Normal, a podcast that explores what it takes to cultivate and maintain our well-being in this time of national and global crisis. My team and I at The Big No bring you conversations with thought leaders across different facets of health and well-being to understand and teach others what it takes to be well in today's world. And right now, people are feeling lots of feelings. They're feeling stress, anxiety, frustration, boredom, anger, fear, and grief. That last one, Grief is something I'd like to spend a little more time on today. 
Some of us are experiencing profound grief right now because we've lost people, sometimes people very close to us, and we're expected to lose even more. And while that's incredibly painful, we're also grieving a ton of other losses, the loss of our way of life, of our summer plans, of our social connections, of our livelihoods, of our sense of normalcy and of certainty. And what really amplifies all these feelings of grief is that a lot of us have also lost our normal ways to cope with that grief. We can't hug each other, at least people outside of our home, and we can't hang in person with our friends and loved ones. It's all digital now, which is cool and better than nothing, but it's not the same. And without our usual ways to cope with our feelings, we can go to some pretty dark places. So today, I want to talk to someone who can make sense of all these things and maybe give us some ways to live better right now. And I think I got just the guy. Tim Desmond is a psychotherapist, a scholar, a meditation practitioner who studied under Zen master Thich Nhat Hanh. Tim is the co-founder of the Morning Sun Mindfulness Center in New Hampshire and is the author of many best-selling books, including the Self-Compassion Skills Workbook. I'm super excited to have this conversation today. Tim Desmond, thanks for joining me. I'm glad to be here. First off, how are you right now during this COVID-19 nonsense? It's me and my son, I'm a single dad, and, um, and we're doing okay. Yeah, it, it's um, like a lot of people, everything that we thought was going to be happening now isn't. And that's kind of how life is when you look at like, I feel like the idea that we can predict what's going to happen is getting pushed away. And that brings us back to uh, this kind of deep sense of what can I do with what life is giving me? And I feel like right now I'm focusing on connecting with my son and having lots of time with him. I mean, it sounds like you've already found some silver linings, but maybe you're sort of predisposed to the silver linings because you kind of know what to look for. What has your time alone with your son taught you so far? It's funny because it's not, it's, it feels really different than time alone. So my son's seven and I've spent a lot of time alone. And I actually, I love silence and solitude. And I think that I love silence and solitude because I've spent a lot of time kind of training myself to appreciate that. But that's not my experience of quarantine. My experience of quarantine is bouncing back and forth between, I'm starting this new, uh, like really big ambitious project called Peer Collective, trying to make mental health more accessible to people. And then as soon as I'm not working, I'm like full on with my son finding ways to move through busyness is actually a bigger uh, part of my life right now in terms of moving through busyness in a way that where I'm not caught up in it and kind of dragged along by it. And, it, and it's interesting because just very explicitly slowing myself down by 10%, like going 10% slower than I could allows me to be where I am in a really kind of dramatically different way. That's so interesting. I, I feel like me personally, I thought I had a pretty busy life before, but the irony in my life is since I've been home, I've never been busier. Maybe I'm not alone in this, that I feel like I have to be more busy right now just to maintain the same sense of normalcy. It's so unique for people. And that I think probably what everybody has in common, aside from quarantine, but is it's like, the loss of whatever, whatever way you were keeping your life balanced, because it's swung in one direction. For some people, it's swung toward there's no downtime. 
And for other people, it's one chord, there's always downtime. So I guess the thing that I want to say is like, for me and you, we're, we're busier, but just like not, not everybody is. But I think the thing about revving, I think it's a, it's grasping for control. You know what I mean? Like there, there's so much that we can't control right now. And I think that what I see in myself, and I definitely see in a lot of other people is this kind of this push of in every given moment, well, what, what can I be doing? Like, how can I be exerting some type of control over my life? And a lot of that is like moving projects forward or kind of work types of stuff. It, it's like trying to feel a sense of control. Yes, we're, we're hungry for control right now. I, I get that. Because I, I feel like we've built this sort of culture where being busy and feeling in control is kind of like what you want. But right now we're all collectively, we don't have control over a lot of our lives. Maybe there is something to just the busier we are on purpose, quotes on purpose, the, the more control we have. No, we don't, it's not the more control we have. The perception of control, maybe. Yeah, I think that's really important because, you know, there's, there's a dialectic between feeling in control and feeling acceptance or sort of uh, equanimity or, or, or faith. And, and I think for me, it, it's nowhere better expressed than the serenity prayer. Grant me the serenity to accept the things that I can't change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I think that accepting the things that we can't change, that when, when you talk about that culture of control, right? It's like, I would say that our cultural mantra is more, may I absolutely minimize the things that I can't change and control every possible thing and make it the way that I want. And actually, I, I think that that's, that's built on sort of an evolutionary impulse in us. The human mind has evolved with this constant striving to make your environment more like a little bit better than it is. We have this constant problem solving. Uh, where wherever you are, you're looking around to how could I make this a little better? And that's a beautiful impulse in us, right? Because in some ways, that is the essence of compassion. It's like, how can I make the world better? What a great impulse to have. However, it undermines any possibility of contentment if you give that impulse just the keys to the car and you say you're driving. The idea that that impulse can be a good servant, but a terrible master, I think is, is for, for me, like an important understanding. So when we lose our sense of control or when we lose our sense of normalcy, when we don't have those things, you know, are those the moments then where we start to feel some of these darker feelings? Uh, we'll get into grief more in a second. You know, we could talk about anxiety, depression, really, really any of those is it when we're not getting what we want or when things aren't going the way we plan that all of a sudden we, we feel this friction? Not, so not necessarily. It depends on what your model of the world is, right? So the idea of serenity to accept the things that I can't change. Obviously, there's a large set of things that we can't control, right? Even before this, there were plenty of things in our lives that, that we couldn't control. We didn't necessarily face them. And actually... It's not necessarily that they didn't even have as much of an impact on our lives. It's just our routines made it so that we didn't have to look at them so much. Facing all that I can't control, the question is, 
can I trust that which I can't control? Is it trustworthy? Is it, is it out to get me? Is it just chaotic and neutral? Or could I believe in some, some type of higher power? Eric Erickson's, uh, his, his stages of psychosocial development, the very first stage, the sort of infantile stage is trust versus mistrust. And it's as an infant, there's not a lot that you can control. So then the question is, can you trust? And for so many of us, that's the question right now. It might seem like everything is, is absolutely falling apart. But the question is, like, is there some way that I could feel like I can't control what's happening, but it's going to be okay? I guess what it comes down to is we live in a world in which suffering is inevitable. We live in a world in which you're just not going to have as much control as you'd like over the world. No, nobody does. Like there's not a human being that is a stranger to suffering. And there's not a human being that feels like they have the amount of control that they would like to have. The question is, is it possible for me to feel kind of at peace or some type of contentment with this human condition? Because and, and, I, I think it, it really, it comes down to sort of like these, these existential questions. Yeah, we're very much in an existential moment right now. It's just sort of a global existential who are we moment right now. I definitely, I feel that. Like with everybody that I've talked to, uh, we're all kind of, you know, I actually said this on other podcasts where we're just collectively like, it's almost an opportunity to, to redefine who we are as people, which I think is very powerful. Like I, I come to this, you know, having this background in Buddhism, suffering old age and death, you know, sickness is inevitable. We, we're facing it now. I write about this in my most recent book, um, How to Stay Human. Uh, and my wife passed away in a, a little, about a year and a half ago. Um, she was like 34 or 35. She got diagnosed with stage four colon cancer. Um, she was sick for a couple of years and she died. She died with my, when, when our son was five. And the experience of everyone dies, the experience of everyone becomes ill, it makes sense that we do this, but we act like, well, not me, or like, not really, or like maybe some other time until we're faced with it. And I think that that's just the thing. It's like, we're all going through this so we can talk about it. And, and maybe actually, this could create um, a really different type of experience because if you're the only one going through something like this that you know, you know, if someone close to you dies unexpectedly, like the, the person that, we, that, that called in and, and shared her story, if you're the only one going through grief, then there are ways to reach out, but it's not like this shared grief and everybody else for the most part, is trying to figure out some story why they can believe like, well, okay, well, that happened to you, but not me. It isn't like, I, I want to still hold on to th that type of thing won't happen to me. Right. 
we all have some sort of grief right now. It's a spectrum, of course. It's a spectrum, but there's like each of us right now is going through our own little like piece of grief. One of the things that my teacher Thich Nhat Hanh likes to talk about in every moment of life, there are infinite reasons to be happy and infinite reasons to suffer. And what matters is what we're paying attention to. Right. And so whatever's going on in my, in my life, I can be trying to focus on the things that are beautiful. I can also be trying to focus on the problems or the things that I haven't achieved, but sickness, old age loss, those things are, are inevitable in life. And it's possible for me to develop a set of, of, of skills or a type of strength that allows me to be fully human in the face of loss, in the face of danger, in the face of uncertainty. And that for me, I wanna use the word compassion, like what that is. The type of strength or skill that allows us to, to be who we wanna be in the face of those, those inevitable parts of life. And so the issue is like, another metaphor that Thich Nhat Hanh gives is like, uh, life gives you garbage, but it's possible to turn garbage into compost and compost into flowers. So the question is, not everybody is able to turn garbage into compost. Not everybody has the awareness or the intention to do so. But if when you recognize like, okay, life just gave me a big pile of garbage, I can turn this, I can use this to develop my ability to face, you know, challenges in life. So, yeah, so we're clearly going through lots of challenges right now. You mentioned uh, the woman off the top who lost her brother. People are losing loved ones in the hospital right now. This is collectively a tough time for lots of people. Even still, what can we learn from these moments? And then how can we use what we learn to make the world maybe just a little bit better? And I think the first thing for me in these moments is for, for each of us to decide, how do I want to show up in this moment in history and in this moment in my life? Because we need to like kind of uh, decide like what's important for you? Because any type of growth or change or whatever we're going to talk about, it, it only works if it's meaningful to you and, and if it's meaningful enough that it motivates you. The, the question is like, what's the type of person that I want to be? How do I want to be able to handle moments of absolute uncertainty, of loss, of, of danger? And if you decide that I want to be someone who can face these moments of life with openness, face these moments of life with fearlessness, face these moments of life with like a heart that looks for like, well, how can I be of help? And if that motivates you, if that's like, that is, that's, that's something that I want, then that motivation can lead us to examining what is keeping me, like, what are my reactions in this moment? And as we start to look at our reactions, they 
almost all come down to there's something about this moment, something about my experience that I don't want. It doesn't match up with how I want it to be. Yeah. And right now there's a lot about our experience that we don't want it to be this way right now. (laughs) So how do we face that? As soon as I recognize that that's what's happening, as soon as, and and it's not easy to just to notice, because it's like, I can be lost in it, like lost in just like a, I hate this. I hate this. I hate this. Just the moment of, I wish that I could connect with people more. I wish that I could go out and do something but I can't. And I'm able to hold those two things of like my wish and the reality and how they're different. That for me is the core to learning how to face these experiences because the the wish, the longing that's in there, every experience of distress, of fear, grief, anger, underneath it is a longing for how you wish the world would be. And it's really a longing for a better world. And that's something that makes us beautiful as human beings. We all have this, like, I wish, what you, when you're reading the news or you're you know, wishing that you could go and you know, go to a park or whatever it is, it's like this wishing for, I wish I lived in a better world. So rather than I need to make that wish go away. Like that's not where equanimity comes from. Equanimity comes from seeing that that wish is what makes you a beautiful human being. Like I read the news and I see some public official doing whatever they're doing and I'm like, no, right? What's the wish? What's the longing? What is the, the longing for a better world that's there? It's like, I wish that I could trust people in power. Let me just feel that for a minute. And let me know that that wish, that longing for a world where I could trust people in power is a beautiful wish. I don't live in that world. And that's not the, the realm that we live in. There'll always be... Corruption has been a problem as long as there have been people, uh, you know, in any, in any fashion. And so this idea that we live in a world in which I can just say ignorance and cruelty or ignorance and violence are, are going to be a part of life. And yet I wish that they weren't. Let's just, we sit with that for a minute with just that naked existential reality of, I wish that I lived in a better world. I wish that I lived in a world without ignorance, without violence. And that's, but that's not gonna happen. So what do we do with that? So it's like this acceptance that needs to happen, right? Like how do we, how do we cultivate this sort of acceptance of whether it's grief, uh, whether it's longing, how do we get over the, the friction that, those feelings cause us or the, the negative feelings? Or, and how do we start to accept the world as it is? What, what can we do to start shifting our perception? So, I mean, especially kind of coming back to grief, like the, um, the woman who, who opened this and, and my own experience as well. I mean, underneath grief is love. It's like this... Um, treasuring something that's now lost 
And it could be the type of grief that comes from someone dying. And it could be the type of grief that comes from your lifestyle changing or losing a job. But it's like the grief is kind of commensurate with how precious whatever it was is to you. And so it's the, the, the shift goes like this. First, I just recognize I'm suffering. Like something is feels wrong. What, what, what's going on right now in my life isn't working. And so I just stop for a moment, stop my, my stories and give myself the chance just to, to look at my experience and feel. And I recognize, and so I, I come back to the sensations in my body. I feel heaviness. I feel tension, whatever that is. And I recognize as I start to listen that it's like, yeah, this is, I'm, I'm grieving. But then seeing deeply, it's, it's insight. Seeing through, seeing a little bit more deeply into my grief. What, the, the way that I would say it is that the compassion that's at the root of the grief, the love that's at the root of the grief. And, and what that compassion, what that love always is, is, yeah, it's this sort of like, there's something that, there's some way that I wish the world were better. I wish this beautiful person could still be in my life. I wish, I wish that, I, that, that I could feel like I know what's going to happen to me, you know, whatever it is. And then, and when I, when I see the wish that's there, I need to recognize two things. It is like one loss and change and uncertainty are inevitable. And two, all human beings long for certainty, safety, you know, to, to, to hold on to the beautiful things they have. And if I can see my grief in that light, loss is inevitable, but no one likes it. Everybody wishes that it weren't. And in that, there's just like a, a, a really different, like that is an energy that can move and, and heal and can put you in touch with life instead of being in this kind of holding pattern of uh, kind of spiraling. So you work with a lot of people, you give a lot of speeches on, you know, anxiety, and compassion and grieving. I know self-compassion is a big thing for you. What are some practical ways to, to bring these feelings to light and to shift our perspective on what we might perceive as negative things happening right now? I think every practice begins with two things, with um, confidence and motivation. So motivation is, I want to show up differently in the world than I am, right? Like the motivation is like, this matters to me, whether it's cultivating compassion, whether it's alleviating some of my anxiety, regardless of what it, what's kind of motivating me to get involved in this, that motivation has to be clear for me because that's going to be the fuel that moves me to practice. 
And then second is confidence, believing that that's possible. So if, if I'm depressed and if like staying home, it's just like, I can't get out of my own head. Motivation is like, I want to overcome this depression. Confidence is I know that it is possible. Without those ingredients, it's really hard to practice. So motivation you have to find by looking, right? You just need to know that it's there and you need to know like that, that it's like, I have to want this. Confidence, I mean, that, that comes from some information. What I can say is um, Richard Davidson, who's a neuroscientist, he, he wrote the forward to my first book and he, he's, uh, some people call him the Dalai Lama's neuroscientist. He studies what he calls mental training. And what he's found is that with practice and effort, people can develop whatever qualities of mind they want to in a way that's not merely subjectively viewable, but as something that is, you know, changes your brain anatomy. These are things that are objectively measurable. And so just looking into that, anyone who has studied, like if you're looking for confidence, the question, the, the, the thing to remember is any person who has put in sort of a, a, a rigorous attempt to study is it possible to change qualities of mind has found that yes, it is. And has found that the key to, to developing or changing qualities of mind is time and energy, sort of time and energy invested. It's similar to like learning to play an instrument. So with motivation and confidence, then the next piece is practice. And I think there are different ways of trying to practice. I think Formal practice can be really helpful for a lot of people, which is setting aside some time that I want to practice this. Let's say what I want to do is develop my ability to feel less afraid of uncertainty. Like I, I want to be able to be, uh, to, to look at uncertain moments and have more equanimity. The first stage of any type of developing equanimity in yourself is to find yourself in a safe place and let yourself feel safe. That's stage one. Stage one is set aside some time when you don't have anywhere to be, anything to do, where like no one's going to be bothering you, and just know. For the next 15 minutes, I'm really safe. Nothing is wrong right now. And that's one of the reasons this sort of idea of coming back into the present moment, because your mind will, but things could be wrong in the future. But right now, there's nothing wrong. So stage one is this sort of like, in a safe moment, I can feel safe. Once I've developed the ability to feel safe in a safe moment, then I can start to learn how to feel safe in a more challenging moment. And the way that that practice looks is almost the same. You might sit on the same cushion in the same sort of quiet spot in your house. Instead of just trying to come back to this moment and feel safe, I might take a few breaths, come into this moment and feel safe, and then purposefully think about something that's difficult for me and try to bring this perspective that I've been cultivating, this openness and compassion to whatever difficulty that I find in my life. And it's, it's kind of like 
the, the metaphor that, that I often think is like, when you start to exercise, you're going to start with the five pound dumbbells. And then once those are easy, you start to increase the weight until eventually you can think about something really difficult in your life. And you can, you can imagine it happening and still have this equanimity. But that's something that we work up to. What I hear you talking about is meditation practices. Yeah. Like what are some practical practices or things that we can do to deal with some of these negative emotions that we might have right now? What are some real tangible things? So the, the first thing that I need to say in going into this is acknowledging that not every, like logistically, people have different types of challenges, right? For a single parent with a young child like me, I, I, if, if whoever's listening to this, if you are a single parent with a young child, I fully understand that the idea of setting aside 20 minutes to be undisturbed is not an easy kind of option. But what I want to do is I'm going to sort of make kind of some general recommendations and then realize that some people have to do the best that they can with the circumstances that they have. Ideally, there are two sides of developing mindfulness and self-compassion. And one of them is most of what we've been talking about, which is the practice of transforming suffering. But the other side is the practice of cultivating joy. And it's impossible to transform suffering unless you're also capable of cultivating joy. Experiences of joy are like the fuel that we need to be able to be present with suffering. And so if you're, if you're trying to kind of look at or deal with or sit with or whatever you call it, painful experiences in your life and you're just feeling exhausted or, or overwhelmed by it, Often what's happening is that what you really need is to be spending more time cultivating joy. It takes some wisdom and discernment to know in this, you know, on, you know, April 28th at 8 a.m. in this particular moment of practicing, should I focus on what's difficult for me or should I focus on what's beautiful in my life? That takes some discernment. But knowing that both are vital and you can't have one without the other. I think that for most of us right now, looking at the practice of of cultivating joy, I think is probably a big thing that's missing. The core practices of cultivating joy, the, the first one is paying attention to the positive conditions that are already present in your life. And my favorite exercise to notice what's positive in your life is the practice of the non-toothache, appreciating your non-toothache. So like if you had a toothache right now, if you had a really bad toothache right now, you would be thinking, if only my teeth didn't hurt, I'd be so happy. Well, there you go. Your teeth don't hurt. That is a condition for happiness. Anything that isn't wrong, we can recognize as actually a condition for happiness that we would recognize as such if it were wrong. It's this sort of blindness that we can develop to all of the conditions that are supporting our, our existence. So just paying attention to those, paying attention to some beauty can be extremely helpful in cultivating joy, slowing down the practice to the extent that we can, sitting in a comfortable position, getting rid of any distraction and just practicing nowhere to go, nothing to do. 
all that I have in this moment. Now we might get, have like stories or whatever, but um, that, that can come up in that moment, but the nowhere to go, nothing to do comes back to, I'm going to give myself this moment, like with an attitude of generosity right now, I have nothing else that I need to do than just to be here. I can let go of anything that might pull me away. I'm going to give myself these five, 10 minutes to do nothing. And that can be a source of joy. Or I'm going to, you know, find whatever it is, whether it's going for a walk or, or um, appreciating something beautiful, I'm going to, to focus on something that's beautiful in my life. And those sort of like letting go and opening up to what's present, those are really important sources of joy. And it's only when we are able to find some joy in life that we have the energy to be able to face what's painful. What we always like to do is leave listeners with one practice that they can do right when they get done listening. And you just gave us two, but I'm wondering if there's one thing people maybe who are suffering some grief right now and they're in a really tough spot, what's one simple thing that they can do right away? So I want to offer a, a practice that was really helpful for me in going through grief. There was something for me about walking meditation, which is sort of like a just uh, going somewhere, uh, could be just inside my house or could be just outside, walking very slowly. So often it's sort of one step with my in-breath and one step with my out-breath. Walking very slowly, allowing whatever feelings arise in my body and recognizing that every human being that's ever existed knows the pain of loss and that the loss that I'm feeling comes from my ability to love. And just kind of like, as I walk slowly, seeing that in myself, that's a, I feel like a core practice that was really helpful for me and, and continues to be helpful for me in my grieving process. This has been a really great conversation, Tim. Personally, walking meditation for me has been just tremendously helpful. It's amazing how out of sync our breath is with our body. And as soon as we start lining those things together, something happens, you know, where we just like, when you're getting better at yoga too or something, where you're just kind of like aligning your breathing with your muscles, it, your mind becomes an aligned too. And I think it's a real magical thing. It's not magical, but it, it feels magical at times. <laughs> Mysterious. Mysterious. It's a very mysterious feeling. We are at the end, Tim, but it's been a pleasure to talk, really. But before we let you go, how might people listening learn more about you and connect with you? Well, if people want to learn more about my teachings, uh, you can find my books kind of anywhere that books are sold. Uh, Self-Compassion in Psychotherapy is a psychotherapy textbook, um, the Self-Compassion Skills Workbook. And the biggest project that I'm working on right now is called Peer Collective. And we're trying to radically increase access to mental health support through online peer counseling. The goal of what we're offering is that anybody who needs any type of emotional support will be able to have the easiest possible access to it. And so people can find that at uh, peercollective.org. Awesome, Tim. It's been a pleasure. If you want to learn more from Tim, The Big No actually is working with him right now to bring a self-compassion course to life. Later this year, we'll be launching a series of lessons about self-compassion, how we can practice it, get better at it, and hopefully mute that negative voice of self-doubt in all of our heads. So stay tuned for that. 
Look, I know what we all want. We all just want to get back to normal, but we have to accept that normal, it's over. And if we really think about it, for a lot of us, normal wasn't working in the first place. Normal was stressing us out. Normal was making us sad. Normal was making us sick. Normal was making us bored. We can do way better than that. We can go beyond normal. Beyond Normal is a production of The Big No, where renowned experts teach the skills of health and well-being on demand. You can learn more about our licensable and custom health content solutions at thebigno.com. That's thebigknow.com. The Big No would love to hear your personal stories about how all this coronavirus nonsense is affecting you right now. We may feature your audio stories in episodes like we did today. If you're up for it, simply use any audio recording device you want, like your phone, and capture a few minutes of your thoughts, feelings, fears, hopes, whatever you want. And then email that recording to beyondnormal at thebigno.com. That's beyondnormal at thebigknow.com. And thanks in advance for that. Beyond Normal is produced by me and by Tom Godfrey. Assistant producer is TMR. Our theme music is from premiumbeat.com. The show is edited by Damon Kaler. And I'm your host, Nate Matson. Goodbye. <laughs>